0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Flying High with Flutter. I'm your host, Alan Weima. And uh, before we start, I wanted to give a quick uh, shout out that we have a current course right now. So if you're interested in writing uh, Flutter apps and adding some Rust to your Flutter apps for performance, bringing in extra libraries that just aren't in the Dart or Flutter ecosystem, you can go ahead and check out the course. The course is at rustwithflutter.com. Again, it's rustwithflutter.com. So again, back to the show. Uh today I have a special guest. It's Brendan Matthews. He's an author of uh the book called uh I always get this one wrong. Uh Co- it's called, Code Like a code Pro. Code Like a Pro. So the title of this episode is Rust Like a Pro. I think I wrote that wrong wrote that one wrong. But it's Code Like a Pro with Rust, if I remember correctly. Uh I don't know why, but the title always messes me up. But the uh the book itself is a fantastic. Um I, me, I still think I'm a beginner rust, Rust, what do you call it, beginner rustation. But um, in any case, I've done a couple of things in production with rust. Super happy with it. I love the performance of it. Um, But I always feel like I cannot write idiomatic rust code, Uh, but you call it rustatious code, I believe we talked about. So we have to talk on the other, so I have another podcast I I do called um, Rustation Station. And, uh, so if you're interested in Rust stuff, you can check that podcast out. And you were just a guest on there on the recording, at least yesterday. That episode's not released yet, but, um, yeah, sorry. We, I'm doing too much talking. Now it's time for you to to, to take over and kind of talk about yourself for a moment. Go ahead.
1: Um, yeah, sure. So, um, my name is Brendan and, uh, I've been, been writing software for, um, 20 years or so. Uh, I got into Rust, um, five or six years ago i would say um uh, and I, I i sort of filled it fiddled around with it for a while um uh but it wasn't until uh i guess around three years ago that i started um trying to actually three maybe four years ago i i, I started trying to actually build things in rust and uh very quickly i learned that um it's uh, it has a bit of a a steep learning curve, and it's a little tricky. Um, and it, you know, like like you mentioned, it's it's pretty hard to figure out what the idiomatic way to do things in Rust is, um, or the Rustaceous way. So uh, that's that's a big part of what my book is about, and um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping people find it helpful.
0: Yeah, I, I really found it super helpful. Like, there's a couple of concepts to me that uh, stuck out, like um talking about which kind of components to add, right? So um when you use Rust, it, it's kind of bare bones, which I think that's part of the Rust philosophy is like, don't bring in things that you don't really need. Um So you have to kind of start saying, okay, if I'm going to actually be writing Rust and writing good Rust, like a pro... Uh, I probably need to add in a couple of things such as cargo expand uh maybe rust fmt uh, I'm not too sure like as somebody who's been running rust code for quite a few years like what's in your tool belt when you have like if you have a brand new computer you're installing rust up for the first time like what do you try how do you set up your machine
1: that's a good question um so i guess to to answer that you have to th- maybe think about hmm. what your workflow is and, I, and i'm going to assume that most people fall into, um, either the category of people who like to use some sort of integrated development environment IDE, like, uh, VS code or something. That's, that's one set of people. Um, and then the other set of people are, are people who are maybe a little more traditional and prefer to just use a plain old text editor. Um, and just write the code, which is how I was for a long time. I sort of rejected IDEs and I thought that they didn't add much value. Um, although, you know, these days I've changed my mind on that. Uh, but if you are going to go down the, the IDE route, then, um, beyond Rust up and, and base, basic cargo, there's, uh, a bunch of stuff that Can make your life easier uh you know like specifically um a tool called rust analyzer uh is 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 basically the language server implementation for for rust um well actually it's it's one of two this this is a little bit confusing and i try to make it clear in my book but um there's there's basically two competing implementations in Rust, there's the, the Rust language, Rust, or, or, sorry, it's, uh, sorry, RLS, yeah, Rust language server or RLS, uh, which is like the, the, uh, you know, quote, official one or, or whatever. Um, and then there's an, there's another competing implementation called, uh, Rust analyzer. Um, and I th- I think strictly speaking, Rust analyzer is still labeled as like, beta software, not, not fit for use. But, um, in practice, I found that Rust Analyzer is much better than, and, than, um, RLS. So, uh, you're better off just using the, you know, the beta software in this case. Um, uh, so that's, yeah, Rust Analyzer is probably the the first big thing. Um, and then beyond that, there's, there's like a long list of tools that um sort of bolt on to cargo and uh the other the other rust tools um uh which which you can use i mean some of these are things that you would use um continuously like without like while you're working with rust code some of these are tools that you'd you'd use um occasionally like for example you mentioned Rust expand, which is a, um, uh, it's, it's, it's basically a tool that will, uh, pre process the Rust code and show you the expanded version of it. Um, and this is, this is really helpful if you're trying to work with macros in particular, right? Because like Rust has a macro system and if you're, if you're trying to the macros essentially generate Rust code based on, you know, your code. <laughs> and, um, uh, if you're trying to debug those macros and see what's going on, then cargo expand lets you see what the results, like the expansion of, of those macros, um, uh, looks like. Uh, and that, that's super helpful. Um, but, you know, whether it's cargo expand or some other tool, um, a lot of these things are sort of designed for working around particular, particular edge cases or, or, or whatever. Um, another one that's useful is cargo tree. And that's for examining like the, the dependency tree, um, in your package. Uh, and you know, there's, there's a bunch of them. There's one, you know, there's, there's, there's tools for like code coverage, for example, to generate the coverage reports for, um, CI systems, um, um, and a bunch of other things. Uh, but <laughs> the, the first thing that I would do to set, I mean, yeah, if I'm, if I'm trying to set up an environment, I would set up, um, uh, well, you know, I'd install rust with rust up, um, um, Then I would install, uh, VS code and Rust analyzer. Um, and then, and then Rust format and, and Clippy are the sort of the, the quintessential Rust tools in addition to like the whole LLVM suite, which gives you like, you know, a debugger, um, and all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, hope that answers your question.
0: When you say LLVM suite, like, is this part of like those rust up components?
1: So, no. So, so when I say LLVM suite, I mean LLVM itself has a a bunch of tools, like like a debugger, for example, right? And if you if you want to use the debugger, one way to use it is through VS Code, um, uh, and so. You know, if you set up, if you set up the, the Rust tools, then you can, you can run the debugger just like you would in, you know, any other environment and like watch variables and, uh, step through code in VS Code, you know, a line at a time or whatever, um, set breakpoints, all that. Uh, and so all, all of that is done through the, the LLVM suite, which includes um LLDB which is the the debugger. Um and then you know the reason all that works is because it hooks into like the, the LVM tool set that lets lets Rust sort of like piggyback on the the LVM like the whole tool chain. Um, and it, in addition to that, you know there are other tools that LVM includes like um uh, like, uh, for example, if you're, if you're doing testing and you want to do fuzz testing, there's a library called, um, libfuzzer, which is part of, uh, the LVM project. And you can, um, again, there's, there's a, there's, um, a cargo tool <laughs> called cargo fuzz that hooks into libfuzzer and lo- allows you to generate, um, like boilerplate for Rust unit tests that use the, um, LVM fuzzing, fuzzing framework, basically. Um, and they, you know, this isn't exhaustive. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> and, um, I, I definitely don't have an exhaustive list of all the things you can use, but, um, I, you know, I've, I've, I've done a, job of collecting what I think are the most useful and most valuable ones, Um, like the tools you most likely want to use. Um, But, you know, not everything is necessarily there, right? Like one one tool I would say that's kind of missing that I wish existed, which I I haven't found like a a comparable um, equivalent to is something like um, uh, Valgrind which um, I don't know if you've encountered, but like I used it a lot back in my C and C++ days for... Um, you can do quite a bit with Valgrind, uh, but I'd say that the two main use cases for it are finding um, memory errors and uh, race conditions. Um, however, I would say the whole point of Rust is to... Maybe avoid ever having to use a tool like like Valgrind because you shouldn't really have um, memory leaks or uh, race conditions if you're doing things right.
0: That's interesting because I thought the whole like backbone of Rust is that it prevents these types of errors because it can actually check for these these specific things that you mentioned, right? Memory safety and race conditions. Yeah. Because I remember like I watched this guy on YouTube who was uh, kind of he coded up something and go. And as soon as he ran it, it cracked out, uh, on a race condition and he tried to write a similar program in Rust and wouldn't even compile, um, from a race condition.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. So, I mean, I would say there are, there are sort of two versions of Rust. One is the, the idealized version, which is based on the idea that you can build any type of software using, um, you know, perfect idiomatic Rust and, uh, Never have to use any of the escape hatches, like the unsafe keyword specifically. Um, that's one, one version of Rust. And then the other version of Rust is sort of the, the, um, the reality of like the rubber meeting the road sort of Rust where you have to contend with the fact that, um, sometimes you need to use a C library or sometimes you have to like allocate memory in a weird way um and while you know while I wish it wasn't true i think you you have to sort of be realistic in that um or realistic and sort of recognize that there are going to be cases if you if you do a lot of rust there will eventually be a case where you have to either use one of these escape hatches or unsafe code um and You know, that's, that's really just a function of how much time you spend writing Rust, what level of complexity you're, you're working at. Um, and, and so on. So, you know, I don't, I don't recommend you shouldn't, you shouldn't reach for unsafe code and you shouldn't be trying to do like custom memory allocation or anything like that. Um, but you still might have to do it. Right. Like the thing, the thing that Rust can't do is really change certain fundamental aspects of how a computer operates. Right. Like there's sort of, you know, people have debated this kind of stuff in computer science, sort of like in an academic sense before about like the sort of like the idealized um, computer science, I don't know, philosophy or whatever you want to call it. Versus the reality of how the von Neumann architecture works, where you have like a CPU and memory and a disk. Um, uh, and, you know, how concurrency actually works in the system and, and so on. Like, like those things still exist. They're, they're concepts that can be abstracted. But if you're writing a Rust program and you're using threads or what have you, then. You know, th- there could be a case where you have a race condition, especially if you're doing, um, IO or something. Um, not, n- I mean, not if you're doing it like a hundred percent the, the like safe way, but in, you know, it, it, it could happen. <laughs> um, I'm not, I'm not saying the language is, is flawed. Let's be clear. If you write a hundred percent, like like idiomatic safe rust code then you'll never have a race condition or um a memory leak but you know the moment you you need to use a library that's not written in rust and includes some unsafe or you know whatever um um code anywhere like like all those guarantees are are basically gone right um and so unless you can Rewrite 100% of everything in Rust from scratch and never use a a C library or whatever, ever. Then, um, it's pretty tough to make that guarantee. So I guess that, that was a long-winded way of saying, like, yeah, you're, you're right. Like perfect Rust doesn't have those errors. Um, but there's no, there's no perfect anything,
0: right? I guess always production use cases are always going to far outweigh example use cases.
1: Yeah. And and sometimes it's just not worth the pain of um like like sometimes it's not worth the pain of achieving you know the the perfect code versus the convenience of just using an escape hatch. Right? Um you know Sometimes you just got to shoot the code and you don't have time to, you know, make it perfect, basically.
0: Now, um, if you're going to be doing Rust like a pro, does that mean uh, you'll probably have to end up encountering doing a lot of FFI then?
1: Um, Realistically, I don't think so. Um, Well, so I'll I'll try to answer this question with like um, a personal story about Rust. Which is that, um, one of the few libraries that I wanted to use, like, somewhat recently that I couldn't find a a pure Rust implementation for was the, um, uh, the libsodium library, which is like a, a, a cryptography library that it just includes a bunch of general purpose cryptography tools and um uh it's it's written with an API that's designed to be like ergonomic and, and relatively easy or, or painless to use. Additionally, it's it's designed the API is designed such that it's hard for you to do cryptography wrong, which is something that's that's easy to do. Um, and and the I think the most popular implementation of this library right now in Rust is called, uh, uh, sodium oxide. And all it is is just a wrapper around the C library, the actual like lib sodium C library. Um, and, uh, I, I want to, I wanted to use this, but I wanted to use the, the pure Rust. I wanted like a pure Rust implementation of it. Um, and there, there are a few sort of, uh, random crates here and there that, that implement bits and pieces of the libsodium library. Um, but there was no complete implementation of the library that basically had the same API. Um, but didn't depend on any C libraries. So, uh, that's, that, you know, I, I, I went and I, I re-implemented that, um, in pure Rust just so that I wouldn't have to include that C library, basically. Um and, and there are lots of these. You know, I'm I'm picking like a specific example of uh LibSodium. The the library I wrote, by the way, is called um Dryoc, like D-R-Y-O-C, which stands for don't roll your own crypto, which is sort of meant to be a joke because the library is itself is basically a case of rolling your own crypto, right? <laughs> Um, I hope somebody else gets the joke, but I don't know anyway uh um although i i don't I didn't create any like new cryptography in it. I'm just reimplementing existing um uh well known cryptographic functions but um uh my my point is is that like with with the way that the the rust ecosystem works like i think if there if there are any c libraries that that still exist that don't have pure Rust implementations, your options are either that you just wait or um, you can just go and rewrite it yourself basically, which, you know, some people might be up for, some people might not. Um, but um, uh, I I can't think of many libraries where that's something you need to worry about. Like, I guess the exception would be if you're working on platforms like, um, I don't know, maybe Android or something, and you're trying to call functions from from like an SDK or something. Um, in that case, yeah, you probably will have to use FFI. Um, and again, that's going to like sort of break the, the safety contract, Um but i think i think the way to work around that generally would be to um design a, a plugin architecture basically instead of having instead of writing some rust code and having it call um some library you would design your 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 thing as as a plugin and you would have the the plugin sort of loaded into whatever needs to use it um And then, then, you know, hopefully go the essentially go the other go the other direction, like pull your Rust code in, um, and 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 call that. And there's there's actually like some libraries already for other languages that make that relatively easy to do, Um, like like with Python or, um, you know, uh, whatever. Um, There's probably a Java one, but or uh, you know Java or kotlin or dart um although i'm not sure i'm not sure what they are off the top of my head
0: yeah definitely i'm just kind of wondering like what should people be exposed to uh or at least be prepared to be exposed to like for me like um uh in dart i don't have any examples but uh i'm a pretty big user of elixir at least i did a lot more before uh now i'm doing a lot more dart flutter like my personal opinion is that like Elixir is kind of like a baby, the baby kind of derivative language from Erlang. And if you want to know how to write really fantastic scalable Elixir applications, there's not a lot of materials specifically written in Erlang, or sorry, specifically written in Elixir, but I would probably look to Erlang and there's quite a few books about scalable applications using Erlang. So the the syntax of course is different, but you can still read it once you've done enough elixir. So you can take a look at um Erlang books that talk about this and then get the ideas and then try to translate that to Elixir. But I'm just wondering like, what about like for Rust, right? If I want to write really like performant, great looking Rust apps, should I look at C and C++ code to have an idea about what would be good and what would be not so good? Or would that kind of throw me off my path?
1: Um, so it's, it's interesting you mentioned Elixir because, um, there's a, there's a library from Spotify. Um, I forget the name of it. Uh, and the library is for, um, including, including Rust crates in, in Elixir code. Uh, the reason being that the, the Erlang VM is, is very slow when it comes to very specific, um, types of computation in, in particular, Doing math in Erlang is pretty slow. Um, and when I say slow, like I, I don't, I don't know exact, but let's just say it's like a hundred times slower in Erlang than it is to do the same thing in Rust. So, um, I believe it's Spotify. Don't, don't quote me I'm doing this, this off memory, but, um, I think you talk about
0: Rustler, right? And I don't know if that one's by. I just did a quick Google search. I couldn't find anything on that. But I do know that there's a library called Rustler. Uh, that one is how to bring Rust code into your Elixir apps, by the way. It's uh, something called a NIF. Is yeah, that the yeah that's,
1: that's, that's the one. I thought that was a okay. Spotify, the Spotify project or something. It doesn't matter. But yes, yes, that's the one, Rustler. Okay,
0: yeah. I, that's actually the one. That's actually the first time I ever used Rust is I used Rustler. Oh, I uh, see. In production. Interesting. So, yeah, I've had a lot of fun with that. Let uh, I me mean, let you continue on your way. I just want to make sure we got the right one for the audience. In case there's anybody else who's looking at this,
1: yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Uh-huh. So, so yeah. So, um, Rustler. I guess I'm, I'm just looking at their GitHub page right now. They, they get the example they give here is yeah to implement an adder Um because if you're trying to you know adding well, I think just literally just doing a plus b might not be a good case, but If you're trying to do something moderately complex, um, with math in, um, uh, Erlang, then you might be better off, like, trying to uh, offload it to something like Rust. Um, and it doesn't have to be Rust, like, it could be C, but, um, why use C when you can use Rust instead? Uh, so, yeah, this is, um, uh, uh, th- th- this is exactly what, what I was talking about. But, um, uh, so with, with, um, uh, Elixir in particular, you, you could probably imagine cases where you want to, um, uh, I don't know. I'm kind of, actually, a good example might be, um, cryptography right like in fact the, i believe the erlang vm implements a bunch of cryptogap- cryptographic functions for you but i'm going to take a guess and say that like the ones that are currently in available um in the uh in in the erlang vm are like it's is like a pretty small list of of functions so if you wanted to use like I don't know some, some like, uh, crazy hash function or something like, um, like like Blake two B or something like that, which is like some some hash function. I'm, I'm going to take a guess and say that Erlang doesn't have Blake two B. Maybe it does. I don't know. Let me look it up. Erlang Blake two B does it have
0: it? it? Seems like it has Blake two, but I don't know. What is Blake two B?
1: Um, Blake2B is, is, is just like a slightly different version of, of it. There, there's, there's basically like a bunch of different variants of, of these hash functions. And, um, you know, each one just has like a little tweak. Um, uh, but yeah, there's, there's like a Blake2B, there's Blake2S, 2BP. To sp <laughs> um, and, a, and a bunch of other ones. And there's also a blake3 now as well. Um, but anyway, um, my, my point is, is if, if you want to run like one of these hash functions and you want to implement it in Erlang, it's probably going to be super slow. Um, which, by the way, might actually not be a, a bad thing, depending on what you're trying to do. Um, but it might be like so painfully slow that like it's obnoxious, I guess. Um, so uh, I, I guess maybe a hash function is not the best example. But, you know, say just like any sort of... Um,
0: I can give you my example if you like. So since this happened to me, well, let, let me just give my production, right? So you're kind of giving like, a, what's the term? I forget what the term is, like a anecdote or whatever, right? Kind of example yeah. out of your head. So uh, what actually came up to me was I had a client project, which was about 100 plus XML files I had to go through. And pending certain conditions, I had to go up and down uh, an XML uh, DOM, or whatever you call it. And so that, in Elixir, parsing XML, the, the best one I could find, the easiest one I could find at least, was uh, suite XML. And for some reason, the, the memory blew up like about uh, four gigabytes or so, four gigabytes plus. Just from all the uh, the the, uh, the parsing of these these things, and so that was just insane. And also the processing. So it we went from like ten minutes of processing time to um, about uh, four gigabytes of, of RAM, and it was embarrassing to ask my client to say, "Hey, could you please add more RAM to your machine because my algorithm is not so performant." Um, that kind of made me look like not that, not that great, right? If you had this kind of stuff, not like a pro, I guess we can kind of lean back to your book. Uh, I took some time. Like I took, I took a risk because when I did this at the time, Rust was still new to me. I kind of played around with it. Really was excited to go get into it. Never really had a chance. So I took a big, pretty big risk for this one and I rewrote one out of two. So there was like two different types of files I had to process. So I had two different algorithms. One was pretty straightforward. Like you just go through the file and just as you're parsing each line, you could just pull it out. Uh, the other one is I had to go up and down the tree, right? Um, to grab certain things. And so I did that second one, the latter one, uh, with Rust using Rustler. And the entire processing time from end to end went from 10 minutes on to 10 seconds. And memory was like in the megabytes because it was just being released like right away, you know, because the way that Rust works. Uh, so like that's a production use case that I, I used for sure. And it was, uh, yeah, definitely the, one of the best choices because, um, it was faster than the uh, another guy. They they did PHP over there. He did the implementation and his was like pretty fast compared to mine. Uh, but mine was, yeah, he, he couldn't compete. Like to restart the server actually took the longest uh, than it did actually parsing everything end to end. So that's a, a real life production use case. And that's, yeah, that's just so basically parsing XML files with at least sweet XML. Uh, is just not as performing as you can with Rust.
1: Right. Yeah, I w- I would say that is that is definitely um a compelling use for, case for Rust. Even if you don't wanna go like like all in on Rust. Um you know, for for like your typical web service, I think a language like Elixir is probably going to be more productive most of the time. Um like you know, I I, I I can't imagine Rust sort of becoming the replacement for like Ruby on Rails and PHP and and Elixir even. I just, I just, I can't imagine that. But what I can imagine is that those frameworks start to include a lot of, of pieces that are just, um, uh, like small parts, uh, um, built in Rust, uh, uh, because, you know, you, you gotta, you have to like balance, always balance the trade-offs of the amount of difficulty involved in, in writing something in Rust versus like Elixir or, or PHP or Ruby or Python or whatever. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, whatever potential performance or, uh, um, safety implement, implementations or, sorry, implications <laughs> there, there might be from, from doing it in Rust. Um, and you know, like it's cool if you can write everything in Rust, but I would say it's, it's not as easy. It's definitely not as easy to write things in Rust. Um, just isn't as, as much as I would like it to be. Like it, it takes longer just because you have to, um, you had you just have to worry about a lot more stuff basically to write the code, whereas in languages that just do like automatic type inference and whatnot for you, um, you don't really have to think about it so much. I
0: think the other thing too is that there's still a lot of tooling um, and a lot of things that come on the box. Like since we're still talking about Elixir, like there's this thing called the um, uh, Erlang Observer, which gives you a lot of insight about like. Which pieces of your system may be running too slow or are running too much that may be hogging up the system or where you have too much memory being used or allocated, things like that. And that's just built into the, the VM itself. So this type of like when people say tooling, I think about this kind of tool rather than like cargo or these kind of extra things that help make life easier. Um But, yeah, when, when you have like a system that has a VM, like you can hook in a lot of these niceties, like the JVM obviously has a lot of this kind of stuff, too. We could can start debugging, like, okay, which threads are being bad. Whereas, I, I don't know, I haven't played with G- JVM so much that I can do this kind of stuff, but I'm guessing you can do some really cool stuff. Uh For something similar, you have to look at, like, Tokyo console. I haven't looked too much at it, but that's very specific to a very specific runtime. And that will probably only help you on Tokyo-related issues rather than, like, your entire system. If you write the yeah. whole system in Rust, you don't have that kind of tooling. Because you, you could be rolling something totally customized that people just didn't make anything for,
1: yeah i mean it I would say tokyo is is fairly low level still um compared you know compared to something like like erlang um or or elixir um the in particular the um like the the concurrency primitives that Erlang slash Elixir gives you is, um, uh, really top notch, um, top notch in that it's, it's easy to use, easy to reason about, um, works really well and has been like, like, um, very much battle tested. Um, and, and while you can sort of be, achieve the same behavior in in rust i don't think that you can really do it yet at the um like at the same level same level i mean like you can't achieve the same like performance trade off um without having to do have, having to like think much harder i guess um it's it's, it's like a higher cognitive load um, um, but, but not impossible. And, you know, Rust has improved a lot, right? Like with the async, it's, it's much easier now than it was. Um, but now, I mean, current, currently the problem with, with async and Rust is that you can't, you can't mix async and not async code, really. Um, not without a lot of pain. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, it's not, and, and, you know, I think it'll get better, but at least right now, the way, it way it's implemented, um, you, you can't easily, um, or you can't easily achieve concurrency, like in all cases in the way that you can with like the Erlang VM, for example. <laughs> um, uh, but I don't know, you know, eventually the libraries will add async support and hopefully every, everything will be great, um, but it's not going to happen
0: overnight. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe we drifted off a little bit too much off topic, but I, th- I think the topic we went into is quite interesting. Um, like, okay, so is there kind of things that I should be prepared for, like if I was a beginner programmer to if I'm advanced, like, let's say, like, or like a pro, right? Uh like the thing that comes to the top of my head is do I actually have to write macros? Because macros in Rust is really quite it's like cryptic language. It's like Chinese or something. It's solely totally out there when I when I look at writing a macro. It's hard for me to understand. Like, do do I have to write macros if I'm gonna be a pro? Um so you you
1: don't have to write macros, but I would say that learning them is beneficial. If, if you're going to be spending a lot of time doing Rust, just because they can save you a, a lot of typing and boilerplate. Um, Rust Rust macros are actually super powerful because you can... Um, uh, they're, they're basically like...
0: Uh, Why don't we kind of talk about, yeah, what a macro is because uh, we don't have this type of macro in Dart. At least I haven't seen or heard of one before.
1: Yeah. So they are... Two main types of macros in Rust. Um, one is, is, is basically like the, the default, whatever macro. Um, what they call it exactly, but, uh, it's, it's like the, the basic macro. Um, and that is, that is just simple code substitution where you can, you can define like some, pr- like what are the parameters into the macro and you can specify like, what kind of parameters they are, like is it a variable or is it a type and and so on. And then you can define a a block of code and um uh you know then you you it basically just like performs the substitution in the block of code. Right? That's that's the the first type. And then there's another type of macro which is um procedural macros and these are like you know advanced level macros, um, and with procedural macros you can programmatically um, uh, construct the code basically. Um, and these are these are these are pretty complicated. They're not that complicated, but you you can you you basically um, read in the the you know the input arguments basically to to your macro um you have to write the macro and 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 in writing the macro you basically have to build out the syntax tree um in code in in rust code uh and there there are some libraries that that make this um easier or whatever but it's it's definitely more complicated right um, uh, but it but it's also like super powerful like the the way to think about it would be you know imagine if you're writing a program that writes your software instead of actually writing the the software yourself um and it's not as simple as just substituting variables because you need to say like. Um, you know, if this parameter is specified, then write out this code and substitute this thing here. And if this parameter says this, then do this over here. Um, and so like those types of macros, procedural macros can get, um, quite, quite complicated and quite elaborate. Uh, um. But you're, you don't, you don't need to learn them. You don't need to use them to use Rust. Um, I will say that there are some libraries that use them pretty extensively. And, um, it sort of looks like magic when you look at them from the outside. Uh, but that's, that's where tools like cargo expand come in ha- handy because you can, you basically use the macro, run cargo expand, and then it'll show you the, you know, the expanded version of the code that the macro is generating. So you can get an idea of what's actually going on with the macro. Um, I, I should mention that Rust macros are nothing like uh, C macros, for example, which like C macros are like strictly just substitution. And, you know, like you can... With C macros, you can, you know, you can, you can have like syntax errors in in the in the macro, and the you know the preprocessor will just substitute it, and like it's not going to tell you that your macro doesn't make any sense. It'll just blow up, but not in a very helpful way, basically. Um, so you know, Rust macros are, are a lot more sophisticated than that, for sure.
0: And the the other thing to know about macros is they're, they're actually compile time, right? Because there's different types of macros out there, I think. And, uh, these ones are compile time. That's why you can use tools like cargo expand to see what is the final outcome. So, um, but those.
1: Yeah. They, I mean, they're, mm. they're compile time, but it's, it's still being pre-processed, right? Like the macros get expanded before the, the final code is compiled. Um, meaning you can you can have a macro, for example, that defines a struct and then use that struct in your code that you know didn't exist before you ran the macro. Um, but the you know like the Rust tools are smart enough to figure that out and um
0: you know work with it basically. Yeah the the one thing I found quite interesting is like the amount of macros in a Rust program is quite a lot like most of the languages i see they don't really make quite a lot of use of macros or i mean you maybe you see it a lot but it's actually more of a syntactic sugar uh slash what do you call that Dom, uh, domain dsl kind of domain yeah. sp- specific language so like we go back elixir right if you're writing a phoenix application there's a lot of these kind of macros that actually happen that make life easier because it's like okay if I want to do a Git request to say Git and actually generate the hood, I think the Git one is like doing some funky stuff. So that way, like when you read it, it's very clear. But when you have to implement that by hand, it's not. But there's some macros within Rust I think are actually easier to, to have just written out. Like I had this discussion with um, Carl uh, Lurch on the Rustation Station Station podcast where I, I was telling him my kind of concerns about macros. So, yeah, OK, it makes life easier. And I think that makes sense. But some macros I think are a little bit overkill. Like, uh, when you want to do an async program in, in, uh, Tokyo, right? You have that, that one that goes on top of the main. Um, but if you expand that one out, it's just a call that says, okay, block on and run it. And I just thought that was, I thought that particular one was a little bit too much. And I kind of like the, the full syntax of writing an async main intro. And we call that the intro into the async kind of domain. I think that one would be, a little bit nicer to be written out all the way because it was just, it wasn't that much code, right? But sometimes the macro can do quite a lot. So, sorry, you're in the middle of saying something, but I just kind of wanted to stay my opinion about this.
1: Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I, I would imagine that like from the, using that example, from the, the Tokyo author's point of view, I think the issue there is that they want to be able to, um, maintain like forward compatibility so if if they wanted to change something about you know like main or whatever in the future then um by just sticking it in a macro they know they can just like change it in the future and um, everyone's code gets updated um, but yeah i mean i i guess like macros are one of those things that you can definitely overuse because it. it you know they are in a sense like kind of like a DSL it's like you're you're basically replacing a block of code with like your own separate code where someone is just like plugging in the parameters and then it's filling out the code for them right um and so yeah that's that's not always the best thing um uh there's you know like some examples of this are um the like the derive macro, for example, if you're familiar with that um uh which lets you like implement a bunch of um things like like um uh you know like debug um clone um debug clone what else there's a bunch of them <laughs> I'm not thinking that, uh, uh, them right off the top of my head, but um you, you see you see that used like all over the place. Um and the the problem with it is that like the the language then becomes the macro not the actual thing right like you see drive debug and like you know I know that it makes it so that I can print the like debug print this structure but I don't you know I forget what it I don't I'm not even sure exactly what it's doing right it's like you forget what's going on because the the macro is sort of obfuscating the 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 code like the result um that definitely happens right cuz like right now off the top of my head like I don't I I mean I could probably implement like the 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 debug format um, traits myself, but, um, you know, I, 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 like, I can't picture them in my, my mind. I'm not sure what they look like. Um, because I don't know if I've ever written them. I've always just used the, the drive debug, um, thing. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a downside to it. It's, it's definitely a shortcut. Um, but you know, on the whole, I think it's, it's a powerful tool. Um, you could definitely take it too far, right? Like, like theoretically, you could just have a Rust program that is entirely within a macro, right? Uh, just, just as like an exercise, just for fun, you could do that. You could write your whole Rust program in a macro and then you just like put the macro in your, 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 your main Rust File and, and like, there's your whole program inside of a macro, which would be kind of pointless, but you could do
0: it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the the audience of this podcast, they're really, for my, I just look at the numbers, right? When people download, because I can't see too much other than people reach out to me. I've had discussions with quite a few people saying, okay, we're really interested in using Rust and, and Flutter. And, and just in general, people are just interested in, in Rust and by itself, even without Flutter. Um, so like, um yeah, I mean, maybe we can talk more about like um why people would should take a look at your book, right? Because I think most of the people on this podcast are gonna be beginners, but some may be looking to level up or they wanna know what's the next stage. So I would here that if you're a beginner, read the Rust book end to end, do a couple of sample apps and then you should be in a pretty good state. And then like what would be the next kind of step?
1: Yeah. So um I would say first of all, if if you are a beginner my book is probably not the right place to start. Um, but once you have familiarized yourself with like the, the basics of Rust and you can, you know, compile a program, um, like write some simple, simple programs and stuff, then, um, my, my book would probably be worth your time. Um, the point of my book, Code like a pro in Rust specifically is to help people get past sort of like the, the initial phase where, you know, I've, I've been through this many times where like you learn a new language and you kind of get a handle on the syntax. Um, and then you go out and you try to like actually make things in that language and you find out like you don't actually really understand what's going on. And, um, it's, you know, a little, little difficult to actually build things, uh, because even though you, you know, like you've, you see this, you, you understand sort of understand the syntax or whatever, um, you still don't really get it, I guess. Uh, and so, so my book is about like kind of like fast tracking you through that, that part where, you know, basically going from a beginner to, like through intermediate and to advanced, um, as quickly as possible by, um, teaching you about all the things you really need to know to be productive that you don't find in the typical, like, um, you know, Rust introductory book or, or tutorial or, um, uh, you know, anything of that sort. And I think. Like one thing that a lot of books don't cover usually is, is tooling, for example. So I spend a lot of time talking about, um, cargo and the tools that you use with cargo, um, as well as the tools that you would use in, in an IDE like VS code. Um, and you could sort of save yourself the, the effort of having to like, go and try all the different tools and figure out like what you should be using the hard way. Um, instead, you can just, you know, like, here's my prescription, just go start using these. And, you know, if you have different ideas later on, you can do things differently, but um, you don't have to waste a ton of time, at least getting up to speed. Um, uh, and then, you know, I focus on like, the, the, the stuff, basically like the, the touch points, the things where you're going to be, um, spending the most time, right? Like, for example, uh, I have a chapter just on, on data structures and it's, it's not like a, an exploration of, of data structures and like the computer science sense, but just like what Rust has and, like which data structures you should be using what you should be using them for most of the time and um like what what kind of stuff you shouldn't be doing i guess um, and you know it Sorry, i want to just kind this, of interrupt
0: like, like, just want to interrupt a moment like what i liked about the best about that chapter that i think you're missing out on is kind of giving a a quick introduction about like which what each one is for and which one you should focus on and also I think you kind of said that like some of these are built upon others, right? Like I think the vector is like also working with or, or are powering some of the hash map or something. Is that That's right? That's right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in Rust, like most of the time, the right answer is to just use a vec or a vector. Um, uh, the, the vector is like highly optimized and already has you know, all, all the features you'll, you'll need most of the time. And even, even though there are hash hash maps and like linked lists and all this, um, in practice, there's, there's rarely any benefit to using anything other than a vector in Rust. Um, and so it, it would make sense if you come from a, a, a different language, like, I don't know, take, um, uh, uh like a, a Python or something where you might be used to using dictionaries all the time, right? Um, it turns out like y- you know you might not want to do that. Um even though like um uh Rust has uh um you know hash maps and and, and whatnot um which which are fine. They're fast too, but it's i mean you just you just use different patterns i guess um uh and 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 vec is just like the most convenient most of the time <laughs> easiest to work with um and it's very fast so uh um you also have to think about data structures a little differently in rust because there are there are really only two ways to allocate memory on the heap in rust, one way being with a vec and the other way being um, a box. And so, like you mentioned, it, it turns out that when you do use these other data structures, oftentimes it's actually just a VEC underneath because that's that's how the language allocates memory, basically, <laughs> is using a VEC. Um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes there's just no point. Um, oftentimes, you know, it's faster to just scan a VEC uh, and, and, then it is to, you know, try to do a lookup on something else. Yeah, d- definitely. Yeah.
0: I, I, I had no idea that, that a vector was underneath uh, a hash map. I think that's pretty interesting. So yeah, like I said, your, your book is pretty insightful for somebody who's, yeah, I've been coding for a while, but I, I, I didn't know you could do this kind of stuff. So uh, there's just, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, uh, a uh, language, right? Um, yeah. So I mean, for your book right maybe we can start to to wrap up over here um for for rust right so this this the book would be good for somebody who's already like pretty comfortable with rust and just wants to kind of get a little bit deeper so maybe like intermediate kind of level
1: yeah, I would say like beginner to intermediate if 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 you consider yourself a an advanced rust like developer then um there's probably going to be less in my book for you. Um, that's not to say there, there might not be interesting stuff in there. Um, I would hope there's something for everyone. Um, I think the, I mean, personally, I think the most interesting chapters are on um, uh, the, um, uh, like design patterns in rust uh, because these pub, these chapters, yeah, I don't think any of them are published yet, but um I think it's the most interesting stuff because, um, there isn't, there isn't much out there, like in the sort of the Rust land yet on, on design patterns in Rust. And like, you know, what are, what are the standard design patterns? And, and I don't know if everyone has read like the old design patterns book. I, I have it here, not in this room, but I, I have it. <laughs> um, uh, if anyone's read it you you'll know what i'm talking about but um uh i think there needs to be like an equivalent of of that book um but maybe like a briefer one um uh it for rust and like what are what are the things you're going to do over and over again and apply to a bunch of different problems um in rust in a way that is idiomatic um and, uh, you know,
0: we'll, will work for, for you. You mean like a Russ, uh, algorithm's book you're saying?
1: Yeah. I mean, my, my book, my book itself is not all about design patterns, but I think the design patterns chapters are, well, I, I think they're the most valuable ones probably. Um, but they're, I would consider them like advanced topics for the most part, um, Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't try to learn the, the, the Rust design patterns until you've got a good handle on the Rust language itself. Um, uh, but once you do, then, then you can start to like, for example, use features like, uh, uh, marker traits, which, which is like, um, a way of, of constructing, um, uh, uh, Objects in like, you know, in a a generic way and like apply different properties to them. Um, which is something you'll see quite a bit, like in other people's Rust libraries, for example. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if anyone else has like, like made a collection of these design patterns and, and like written them up anywhere yet.
0: Yeah I I don't see a lot of this kind of material like uh there's a lot of I mean there's a there's a book out there called um Zero to Production and he puts the author of that book is putting a lot of um um design patterns in terms of like how to make a system from and how to structure code things like that but not necessarily on algorithms but uh that one I think is also quite valuable too because there's just no like it's not it's, rust is like Wild West, right? There's no, it's not a framework, right? So there's no kind of clear set way. And even frameworks within Rust themselves, they don't think that really is set patterns, right? If you look at like Actix or these other ones, I don't think there's anything there about, you know, put your models over here, put your controllers over here and everything's kind of works. Like I think uh, on the other podcast, you mentioned like, uh, what's, what's the term? Um, not giving you a choice. I forgot what you called that one. Uh, you called it something. I forgot what the terminology is. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, when we talked yesterday, you were talking about you're a pretty big fan of people making choices for you. Uh, oh, like
1: prescriptive, you mean?
0: Yeah, but there is another term that you used that I think is really straightforward for people. Um, Convention of configuration, I think, is probably the more widely yeah. used term. So like if somebody already puts the pattern out there and like sets everything up so that way, if you follow the convention, you'll have everything that you need. If you go against right. it, it may be more difficult. But, uh, yeah, there's no real conventions, I think, for most Rust programs. They just kind of work around you.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, some of the, some of the libraries are definitely quite prescriptive. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the Rust language itself doesn't really impose that. On you, um, um. But I think, like, yeah. As when when you spend when you spend enough time in rust, you'll you'll start to see that like these patterns emerge, and um, there are patterns that work, and there are patterns that don't work. Um, and and some of them are really basic, right? Like, for example, uh, you know, you use use derive, right? Like don't don't implement the, the debug like your debug print traits yourself, just use derived debug. <laughs> um uh that's that's like a really simple example. Um uh and and like those kind of things you'll sort of figure out pretty naturally. Um but at the same time, like I I think there's something that there is it's something that should be sort of written down and You know, I guess not everybody has to agree with it. I'm I'm fine with people disagreeing with those ideas. Um, uh, but for someone for someone that's like brand new to the language, um, or newish, like you don't really want to spend a few years just sort of like wading through a bunch of code to try and sort of discover the way, the like the right way, right? You know, you're not, you're not like a, a Jedi training over, you know, a period of years or something. You want to just like get there quickly, um, and sort of skip the, skip the years of training, um, if you can, right? Uh, and so that's, that's, that's what my book is about.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe we can start to, to wrap up over here. Uh, maybe for so like i said uh, the audience i think is quite interested in rust but i don't know how many people are actually using rust but uh is there any kind of tips or tricks you think that people should keep in mind when they begin on this journey
1: um yeah i would say i mean if you if you're brand new to rust um good place or good, good thing to do is to make sure that you familiar, familiarize yourself with the the tools like clippy and um Rust format and so on. Um, Clippy in particular can help you find bugs and stuff in your code that, that the compiler might not necessarily catch um, before you ship code. Uh, and so it save you a lot of pain. It can also just like find like common logic errors or like code that's unnecessary. Um, I, I find it like sometimes. Clippy, for example, will say like, Oh, here's a piece of code that you don't need or, or whatever. Um, and I'll realize like, Oh no, I do need that. I just, I wrote this like, you know, like my if statement is wrong. And that's why you think I don't need it. Um, and so in that sense, like it can help you find bugs. Um, so I'd, I'd say that's like, that's like using Clippy, um, and building it into your, your workflow. I'm like, you know, setting up, um, uh, automated checks, um, like in some kind of CI/CD system, uh, um, can save you uh, a fair bit of pain down the road. Hopefully.
0: I think the, my personal experience with Clippy, right? I, I, I can't exactly remember what it was, but for instance, I think what came up one time was something like, um, I used like the let, like the if let syntax, but did like an underscore for like in the name or something. When I was just, I wanted to like see like if something were then do this block of code, but I wasn't actually using the the wrapped out value, the underwrap value. I think it was a result or something. I'm trying to remember. It's been quite some time. But what I found that I think Clippy told me, I'm pretty sure I know it was something like this, but what Clippy ended up telling me was like, Oh, yeah, sure, you can use this, but you should actually check out doing it this way, like using like dot is okay in the if statement instead of saying pattern matching on the value coming back out and just not using it. So this yeah. kind of stuff will make your code more idiomatic, more easier to read and more just straightforward, I think.
1: Right, yeah. And and what's nice about Clippy actually is that you can, it, it can actually automatically fix issues for you as well. So you can like run it with, um, I think it's like, Dash dash fix or whatever. Um, and, and it can, like, if, if you're trying to switch it on on a big project for the first time or something, it might generate a whole bunch of, of warnings or whatever. Um, so like the first time you run it, you can just ask it to fix everything for you. Um, and if it can't fix it, it will, uh, it's, it's pretty similar to like the linters that you find in other language, uh, languages, right? Like, like in the TypeScript, JavaScript world. There's a bunch of different linters as well. Um and they're I don't know if they're quite the same, but like pretty similar idea. Um uh and I am a big fan of these tools because um it means less work for for you as a developer, basically. Less to
0: worry about. Yeah, I remember when I turned on Clip first project and when we talked about with the XML parsing. I felt not, I want to say I felt betrayed by the Rust compiler, but not, not really like, I felt like so surprised, like, whoa, what is all this stuff? What did I do wrong? And like, I said, looking at it and I was like, wow, actually, no, I totally see why all these things were, 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 flagged. But I was just surprised that the compiler itself didn't catch this. But, uh, it's actually not an issue of, of the compiler and all this stuff. It's just more like, um, finding better ways to do certain things. I'm not sure how to describe exactly what Clippy does.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it's a, it's a good, it's a good question. I, 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 well, I should mention that like Clippy is, it's, it's pretty configurable. You can sort of switch on and off different checks. Um, some of the checks might, you know, you might consider annoying sometimes. Um, um, but yeah, for the most part, uh, I think it's it's pretty helpful. Um I haven't thought much about like how how exactly it's 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 designed or why these compil or why the checks are not just built into the compiler. Um my guess is that there's a good reason and I think that if you like looked at tickets on um or like GitHub issues from from the Rust team. Uh, I I think I've seen cases where like people are talking about a feature in the compiler and they're like, well, you know, maybe we should do this. Or maybe we should do that. Um, and then like it gets resolved by just saying like, well, let's just let it, you know, let it be, um, uh, and then we can add a warning clippy or something basically. Um, so I, I guess like what I mean by that is sometimes there's, too much complexity to add it into the compiler, um, and it it you know it may belong as a um, a part of Clippy rather than in the compiler because it shouldn't be a core language feature, but rather it should be something that you can like switch on or off um, depending on whether you want it. And so you know, Clippy itself comes with a set of best practices. Um, but like the, the compiler will accept, you know, a much wider set of things that, that work and are still correct, but might not actually be what you want. Right. So, so like Clippy is a much more opinionated version. You you can almost think of it as like, there are two versions of Rust, right? There's the. Official Rust that will pass the Rust compiler. And then there's like the, the Clippy approved Rust. And the Clippy approved Rust is like a much stricter standard, um, uh, that, you know, cares more about different things, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, I, I'm thinking back to like, I don't know if mm-hmm. you have if you've ever used Perl, but like Perl used to have like this use use strict like you'd see it at the top of every pearl script and it was like um it was basically like I, I don't even remember what it did exactly but i just remembered that like there was like a str- a strict subset of the pearl si- syntax that like everyone switched on because um the you know the uh, the non-strict pearl was like too crazy i guess for most people um so, sort of think of it like that, I guess. Maybe
0: <laughs> the way I look at Clippy is between Clippy and the and the Rust compiler is the compiler, like yeah, like you say, it just kind of compiles the code as long as it follows certain rules, it's okay with it. It doesn't really care too much about how you write your code as long as you write it in a way that doesn't violate its rules. And Clippy kind of takes a look at your code and says, hmm, you know what, you're doing this over here, but you're not using like like you, like for result type. You just want to make sure this thing succeeds. You don't really care about what comes back. But it could say, okay, instead of actually pattern matching and not caring about it, it makes much more sense to use this dot is okay or something like that kind of sort rather than saying, you know, doing what I like the example I said. So it's more like, why don't you do this instead? Because you're not really doing not doing something with this. Like it's just more, you know, it, it's kind of like a a big brother or or more senior dev taking a look at your code and saying, why don't you write it like this since you don't need this part of it, or this one is much more clear, something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Clippy, Clippy does stuff like find what I would call code smells. Like for example, if you have a function that takes like 50 parameters or something, Clippy will print out a warning and be like, "Um, you know, maybe you shouldn't have a function with 50 parameters or whatever it is. I don't know what the limit is, but like there's some limit. Um, And you know what? there's probably going to be a case where you need a function with 50 parameters. In fact, I know that I've had this case, like it, like sometimes it comes up, but you know, most of the time if you're writing functions and you have 50 parameters in your function, like, you know, that's something's off, right? That doesn't, it doesn't seem right. So, so Clippy will, will bug you about it, but like the compiler doesn't care, right? You know, Compiler doesn't care how many function. I mean, there's probably like a hard limit on the compiler. I don't know what the limit is. Um, but as far as the compiler is concerned, like if you want to write really messy spaghetti code, go for it, right? Like the compiler doesn't care. The compiler is just there to compile the code. Yeah, definitely. Okay.
0: Um, maybe is there anything else you wanted to, to say before we really sign off this time? <laughs>
1: No, I don't think so. Um, thanks for having me, I guess. I hope I hope that was valuable for
0: everyone who's listening. Yeah. Or or there's also one last thing. Isn't didn't you didn't you write something that you wanted to ask people to maybe check out?
1: Um uh well, I mean
0: Your book, right?
1: Definitely check out my book. Yeah, it's called yeah. uh Code Like a Pro in Rust. Uh you can actually buy it now if you'd like. Um and uh in fact I do I do have a, a, a discount code. Uh yeah, if you if you do want to pick up a copy of my book, you can use the the watch watch Matthew Watch Matthews forty, um, which is W A T C H M A T T H E W S four zero um at checkout and that should give you a discount on the book. Um uh from Manning.com and um so go check it out on Manning, Manning.com.
0: And it's also good for you guys to know too that if you're going to buy the book, definitely buy it directly from a publisher because if you buy it from Amazon or something like that, I think there's less of a cut that goes to you uh, because there's always a middleman somewhere, right? So if you're going yeah, to, if you right. want to, if you, I, I think there's, uh, you can see like a, uh, what do you call that a preview or something. There's like a free chapter you can read or something for all kinds of books. So check out the free chapter if you think it's good and you're interested to buy it. Buy it directly from Manning, because that more money goes to Brendan for for working on it. And uh it's just worth it in the end. And then I think you get a little bit more like you know, different formats, etc. Right? If you buy it from Amazon, you just get the Kindle version, etc. So you're better off going that way. Plus right. you can only get the book now through Mannings because it's still in the meep Manning early access preview or program where you can get a copy of the book and you can give some feedback about good or not. I gave one feedback. I feel happy about it. I found a typo somewhere, but I'm sure you probably corrected that a long time ago when I reported um, it.
1: I might have. Yeah. Yeah,
0: because I don't know. If, I don't know if
1: it's been reflected yet. Um, there's, there's a bit of a feedback loop, but uh, a review, review cycle. Um, but yeah.
0: Definitely. Okay. Thanks for, for coming on. Uh, I highly appreciate it. And I hope that people find this episode useful. And, uh, yeah, so maybe i will have you back again after you finish the book to talk about, you know, how good,
1: uh, you know,
0: more more about the pieces of the book later on since it's still not all out yet.
1: Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.